0: Take out your Bibles, open this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4 this morning. We've been, since last year, working our way through John's Gospel. We took a little bit of a break as we came to our uh, Advent series as we neared the holiday season. We spent several weeks leading up to Christmas focusing upon just the glory of God, the weightiness of God, and uh, the great need of a Savior to come and to, to do for us, just like we sing about what we could never do for ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't be giving enough. We can't be kind enough. We can't be religious enough. We can't be spiritual enough uh, to earn the favor and the forgiveness of sins before the holiness of God. Our hope is in Christ Jesus and Christ alone, and in God's infinite kindness and mercy in the fullness of time. He provided that Savior uh, as we celebrate during Christmas and the birth of His Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the God man, fullness of God indwelling in the body of a man. And that Christ came and did everything that was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins and our reconciliation with God through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And for the past several weeks, we've just been having just some conversations together, which we'll talk about again here at the end of, of, uh, before we dismiss together this morning. But we have opportunity to return once again to John's gospel right where we left off many weeks ago. I see no reason to just jump around and handpick. Let's go right back to where we left off, John chapter 4. We'll be looking this morning at verses 43 through 54. We've all heard stories of men and even women who had what's often called foxhole conversions, right? Now, A foxhole conversion is a, uh, you have a soldier on the front lines of battle, and bullets are flying, mortars are exploding all around them, and, and the, the, the soldier's scared for his life. Suddenly, his partner, who's right next to him, gets hit by one of those stray bullets and is dead in that moment. And in panic, that soldier begins to flash back to long ago when he was a child going to church and going to Sunday school and thinking about his godly mother who who prayed for him for years after years after years. And the soldier, just in fear, cries out, God, please get me out of here. Get me to safety and I'll follow you the rest of my life. And then in mercy and kindness, the Lord answers that soldier's prayer, brings him through safety and through the battle. Now, the real test of that soldier's faith is not what he said in the foxhole, is it? The real test of that individual's faith is not how sincere he was in the foxhole. The real test is measured by, what does he do when the pressure's off? How does he live when the bullets aren't flying around his head and the mortars aren't exploding all around? The real test of the sincerity of his crying out to God is, what does he do when the pressure's off? When the bullets aren't flying, will he then forget God and go back to his old ways? Or will he or she go deeper and deeper and develop a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, clinging to Him as his or her only hope in this life and the life to come? Will that individual cultivate repentance as a way of life, recognizing that before this God that he cried out to in the foxhole, that's a holy God and that He's a sinner? And that the Christian life is one of daily, moment by moment, ongoing repentance. Fleeing from sin, fleeing to a person, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Will that individual continually look to Jesus the rest of his life as his Savior, his most precious treasure, and follow him when the crisis is over? Well... The idea of a foxhole conversion applies to everyone who's ever cried out to God in emergency. Maybe you've never been in battle. I su- submit that probably most of us have not, with a few exceptions. But maybe you or a loved one is facing a, a serious illness, a health problem. So you cried out to God and promised, God, if you will just bring healing to this loved one, I'll walk with you. Or maybe it was a financial crisis, or or maybe a need for a job, or perhaps you were lonely and you were praying for a spouse, a husband, a wife. Lord, if you'll just provide this, I'll give everything to you. I'll walk with you in desperation. The reality is, the Lord is not interested in us crying out to Him in that moment. Now, let me guard what I just said there. I don't mean to suggest that God won't hear you when you cry out in a crisis, cry out to him in a crisis. Theologically, we could talk about some of that, but that's not really what this morning's about. What I'm, the point I'm getting at, the Lord's interest in His people is His glory. Not first and foremost, your comfort, your peace are giving you what you want. The Lord has no interest in being the one we cry out to in our time of need. And then when things are better, we put him on the shelf until the next crisis. Treat him almost like a genie in a bottle or like a butler. When I need something from you, I'll cry out to you. But when I don't, I know where to find you when the next thing comes around. The Christian life... What? What God seeks to accomplish in the salvation of a soul is for His glory. And what He seeks to develop in our faith is a growing trust and a developing, strengthening love for Him in Christ Jesus. Because of who He is, not because of what He can do for us. A love for Christ, an enchantment with the beauty of Christ, with the fullness of Christ being the fullness of God in man, who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we deserve to die before the hands of a holy God, who's gone to the right hand of the Father, who's ordaining everything for the Father's good pleasure, for the Father's will in our lives to bring us to the Father, for that we would glorify God in Christ forever. It's always been about His glory. Being magnetically attracted to Christ. Finding comfort in Him and His presence. Just because of who He is. Not because of what He can do for us. That's the central point this morning. In looking at John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Where Jesus heals the son of a royal official who's near death. In fact, we could say as we prepare to read the text that the lesson here is that the Lord will often, kindly, graciously meet us at the point of our crisis. He will. He'll meet us at the point of our crisis, but that's only the beginning. He wants us. Out of the overflow of that moment of His kindness, of His mercy, of His condescending to us in our time of need. He wants us to believe in Him and follow Him. Not because He delivered us out of that crisis. But because the one through whom He delivers, Christ Jesus, is our Savior, our treasure. And He is worthy of our very lives because of who He is and because of what he's done. Let's look together at our text. John chapter 4, begin reading in verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning grateful again for an opportunity to hear your voice. Your voice has been preserved for us in this book, propositionally in the words on this page, in this narrative story. And you have an intention this morning to speak to your children, to us, to tell us more about the life that you've provided for us in Jesus and the need for an authentic faith. Father, we repent of the various ways we have often used you for our personal wants and desires. We've treated you almost like a genie. At times, like a butler. When we need something from you, we call upon you. But then when we're out of the crisis or things are going well, we almost ignore you. That's not who you've saved us to be. You saved a people by grace, only grace, For your glory. That those people would make much of you. In all circumstances. At all times. Specifically in the face of Jesus Christ. As we honor your son. We honor you. Father we recognize that. Lord we're no better than. Those around us. Who live by a foxhole conversion. We struggle with that. And we ask your spirit to come and help us this day. Come and open our eyes to the beauty of Christ. To the fullness of who he is. That we would find in him our all in all. That we would understand the sufficiency that's in Christ for all circumstances and all things. And that we would live upon him. In times of crisis. And in times of peace. In times of discomfort. And when things are comfortable. Because we love Christ. Because we treasure Him more than life itself. Would you help us this day? Open our eyes to see the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ. And to cling to Him. If there be anyone today who doesn't demonstrate the kind of authentic, authentic faith that we see here, Father. We ask your Spirit for your glory to come and do what only you can do. Glorify yourself in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, it's there's a couple things we need to keep in mind preliminarily, if you will, before we jump right into the text. There's a question that We always have to ask when we come to a text of Scripture. I pray it's a question you're familiar with. I pray it's a question you ask when you approach Scripture. I pray that you sense when we come together around the preaching of the Word, it's a question we have. And the question is this, as we look at a text, what was the author's intention? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what was the author's intention in writing this text? What did he mean to say? Now, what are we guarding against there by asking that question? It is a dangerous and a wrong question to ask, to read a text and to ask the question, hmm, what does this text mean to me? It doesn't matter what it means to you. There is is never a subjective meaning to a text, meaning that for, for Samantha, the text could mean one thing, and then for Brother Joey reading the same text, well, to me, it means this. And then to Jamie, she reads the text, well, no, to me, this is what I got out of it. It means this to me. You see how subjectively we could walk out of the room and we've toyed with the text. That is never the meaning of the text. The, the question is always, what did the author intend under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? What did he intend the text to say, to mean? And that is the meaning for Samantha, for Brother Joey, for Jamie, for all of us. And out of that, we can then begin to talk about application to our own individual lives. Now, that may sound different. Subtly different, but the meaning is always whatever under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the divine or the author in, uh, intended it to be. And it's an important question to ask together, even as we look at a text like this this morning. Only after we understand what John intended this text to mean, can we go on to really preach through it and talk through it and make application to our lives. As we look at this passage together, John 4, 43 through 54, what we have before us is a historical narrative. It's a story, which is pretty much what we've seen over and over in John's gospel. It's a story, and as we approach it, again, there's the temptation. When you read a story, to almost kind of take it for granted, when you read a story, you come upon it and you can almost kind of, well, that's neat, that's a cool story, and move on. We, we almost tend to give more seriousness to letters, like Paul's letter to the Romans. We, I mean, well, there, there's something logical, there's something theological in that. There, we, we almost give more weight to, uh, to epistles and letters than we do the stories, the narratives, for some reason. But the narratives, the stories found in Scripture, found in John's Gospel, are every bit as full of and laden with truth as Paul's writings to the Romans or the Galatians. There's truth conveyed here. Paul, when he wrote Romans, no doubt about it, had a very specific context in mind, had a very specific meaning in mind when he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. But like Paul, John also had something particular he wanted to say When he wrote his gospel, there was something on his mind. But rather than writing a letter the way Paul did, he wrote a gospel. Which he communicates the truth of Jesus Christ in narrative form, story form. Tracing the steps and telling the story of Jesus. It is no less truth than Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. The question is, do we devote as much time and energy to studying these narratives as we do that. We must study this passage to understand what was John's intent. And I, I take the time to begin this way because even as I was working through this text, even prior to uh, our Christmas Advent series, knowing this was then I was tempted to kind of move on. I was going to include it. I was going to read the text, but maybe include it with what came next. And then I realized, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a purpose for this here. We've got to do the hard work of figuring out what it is. When you understand the purpose of a narrative, a story, there's a, a couple questions you want to keep in mind. There's, there's all kinds of elements here that are important to know. Like, for instance, when the author tells a story, as he does here, uh, there's a, usually a place involved. What's significant about the place? Usually the author will introduce the story he kind of give some detail leading into it. What do the details matter? What the introduction to the story? What, what do we learn there? It's probably going to give us some insight into what his purpose is. In the story, what does the author seem to emphasize? What does he seem to highlight? Are there words that he repeats over and over that he intends for us to see over and over? What about the characters in the story? Does he give special attention to one or a couple of them? Does he compare them? Does he contrast them? Does he trace one more than the other? The characters, the way they're introduced, the way that they're developed, the way they interact with other characters. What is he he highlighting? I think this one can be a particularly difficult one to get all those things together. At least it was for me a particularly difficult one to kind of understand unless we're diligent to apply these principles of interpretation. This is a story inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by John. And when we take into account what we found at the end of John's gospel, chapter 20, that everything he included in his gospel was not everything he could have included. He specifically handpicked and chose certain things that helped fulfill his purpose. What purpose being? That we might read and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in him have life. In some way, this story of the healing of the official son plays into that purpose in a way that other stories, while powerful and potent and true, did not. So let's dig in. Let's swim in this for a few minutes. Let's see if we can figure this out. Number one, let's consider the place, the placement, if you will, of this story in John's gospel. There are some clues in the text here that this story, verses 43 through 54, of the the, the healing of the official son, is a conclusion to a section in John's gospel. Chapter 2, if you think back with me, begins with the very first miracle that Jesus did at the wedding in Cana, which was the changing of the water into wine. Chapter four ends in the passage we just read with Jesus back in Canaan, back in the same place where the first miracle was done. He's back and we're told this, he does another sign here. In fact, when you go back to chapter two, John tells us in verse 11, when he turned water into wine, this was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And if you look down to chapter 4, verse 54, the very last verse, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when He had come from Judea to Galilee. Do you see there what we have here is that He's connecting this story with the very first miracle in Cana. They're in the same location. He's almost bracketed, what, chapter 2 with chapter 4. These two miracles in the same place almost bracket a part of his gospel. So if you go back and think, and this is helpful for us because we've not looked at John's gospel since November. Over the course since chapter two, we have Jesus travels to Cana where he does the first miracle. And then from Cana, he goes to Jerusalem, right? For the first Passover, at least in his public ministry. And it's where he cleans out the temple, right? So from Cana to Jerusalem, And then after having some interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's already beginning to ruffle feathers, he goes off into the wilderness of Judea, where he begins to baptize or his disciples begin to baptize in his name. And that's where the, the conflict come between Jesus' disciples, right? Because they see John the Baptist's disciples, because they see Jesus' disciples baptizing more people. And this has been John the Baptist's livelihood. This has been his claim to fame. And so they go to John the Baptist and they say, hey, this Jesus has come out to the wilderness in Judea. It, more people are coming to him, to us. And what does John the Baptist say? It's exactly how it's supposed to be. My whole life has been preparing the way for him and he's here now now my whole intention is to fade into black that now all attention goes on to him so from cana to jerusalem to the judean wilderness and you remember he travels back up into samaria where he comes across in chapter 4 the samaritan woman right he didn't he had to go up to samaria well i mean geographically he could have gone around but there was a divine appointment to go to Jacob's well and there he met with the Samaritan woman she was converted but not only her she went back to her hometown to tell of this man who knew everything about her and they came out Jesus spent two days with them and they believed savingly these Samaritans these half-breeds if you will were saved by grace. And now, right after that, he's made his way back into Cana of Galilee. It's almost a circuit. Do you? He's made the rounds. And so these first and second miracles in Cana kind of serve as a bracket for this portion of Jesus' public ministry. Why don't we take that time to just paint that picture? We've got to understand that what we read here about the official son does not stand alone. This is not just uh, John sitting back, well, I need to fill a few pages here. I mean, if if this gospel is really going to be effective, it needs to be of a certain length. So let me think of some passages I could put. He's not just filling space here. This is not disconnected from everything that's come before it, but rather it's a part of everything that's come before it. It's a part of something bigger, namely chapters 2, 3, and 4. And even that bracketed section is part of the, has a, Part in the fullness of his gospel. Some of you may know the name A.W. Pink. Uh, it was interesting to read some of Pink's commentary on this passage. Pink discerns the two miracles in Cana in chapter two and chapter four. Pink is the one is one of them who sees the connection between what happens here and, and everything that's come before it. And he draws seven comparisons between the two miracles at Canaan. We don't have time to go through all seven. But there's one in particular that uh, I think is significant. He tells us that in chapter 2, the result of the first sign, the changing of water into wine at Canaan, that there the disciples believed savingly. Now, there were some who saw his miracles who did not believe it that way, but the disciples believed. If you go to chapter 4, the second sign of the, the healing of the royal official's son, we're told in verse 43 that that royal official and his household believed. There's a similarity there. And how does that fit into John's purpose? Well, if you think back to what John told us in chapter 20, his purpose was what? That you would see the beauty of Christ, that you would believe that you would have faith. He's giving us stories here of where this is actually happening, of where this fits into his story. Another commentator on John's gospel, James Boyce, points out not only are there similarities between these two miracles at Cana in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, but there's also a great contrast. The first miracle in chapter 2 comes in a context of great joy and happiness, right? Right? It's a wedding. It's a feast. It's a celebration. But the second is a scene of what? Not joy and happiness. It's what? Sickness and death? Desperation? Anxiety? A father whose son is about to die. And he's trying to find anything he can. And he hears Jesus is near. Boyce tells us that by comparing these two stories, we're to see that that's life. By looking at these brackets, life is full of joys and excitements and wonder, but life is also full of situations of sorrow and despair and anxiety. Maybe, well, no doubt, you are at one of those extremes or the other or somewhere in between, right? Maybe you're full of joy and happiness this morning. Maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum. Of complete despair and utter anxiety. And you don't know where else to turn. In all likelihood, most of us are somewhere in the middle. Leaning one way or the other. But the point here is what? We see that Jesus is sufficient for both, for all. Jesus is the hope of all. No matter what the circumstance in life. That's the placement of the story. The placement of the story. As part of. Everything that's come before it in chapters 2, 3, and 4. Secondly, let's consider how John introduces the story. How John introduces it. Look at verse 43. After two days, he, that's Jesus, departed for Galilee. Where was he just prior to this? Samaria, right? The Samaritans. After two days with them, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he made the water wine. That's his introduction to this story about the healing of this official son. There are some interesting things there that are worthy of consideration. The first is this. How do we understand Jesus' words in verse 44? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. What does that mean? Well, we know that Jesus was born in the region of Galilee, specifically in Nazareth. Nazareth was about 10 miles to the south of Cana, so it's in the area, it's in the vicinity, that place where the water was turned into wine. Capernaum, the, the, the city where the official is coming from, is nearby as well. He's traveling for about 15 miles. So Jesus returns to his homeland where he has testified a prophet, which he is, has no honor in his own hometown. thinking minds begin to ask, well, then why go there, right? I don't know about you, but I, I tend to not want to go where I'm not wanted. Right? I mean, that should save myself the frustration. So when Jesus testifies, a prophet has no honor in his own town, and then in the next verse, he goes to his own town, you've got to, if you're, if you're paying attention, you've got to ask, why? That's the first thing we need to consider. Also consider this. Jesus has just experienced amazing success in Samaria. He goes and he meets with this Samaritan woman who he tells her all that she's ever done, things that nobody could know. She recognizes he is who he claims to be. He is the Messiah. She repents of her sins. She professes faith in Jesus Christ. She goes to her hometown. They all come out to see him, to hear his word. And many believe. He was received by the Samaritans. There was wonderful opportunity for continued ministry there in the midst of the Samaritans. If he leaves Samaria and goes to his hometown, what's going to happen? Well, he has no water there. So, again, a thinking mind probably asks the question why in the world are you going to leave Samaria? There's a lot you can do there. You're being honored there. Not in a way that's self seeking or self serving, but my goodness. You go to your hometown, go to Galilee, you yourself have said you're going to be rejected. And yet with that as the context, he knows that to go to his hometown, he'll be rejected. And why leave Samaria? You're having an impact, an effect. We read verse 43. After the two days... Two days of fruitful ministry, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town. Now, in that verse, the word for is significant. For after two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified. It means what? There's an intention, there's a purpose. There's a purpose behind Jesus leaving Samaria, fruitful ministry, and going to a place where he's going to be rejected. It makes no sense to me, and I bet it makes no sense to you, but there was a purpose for it. He traveled back to Galilee, back to his homeland, back to his fellow Jews, because he testified that a prophet had no honor in his own hometown. That's the purpose. He's going there because he will have no honor there. Now even that begins to kind of play with you. The meaning really is that straightforward. Jesus left Samaria and traveled to Galilee because he would not be honored there. And if it's confusing to you, I promise you it's confusing to me. And I think our confusion is,
1: we wouldn't do such
0: a thing. That's not how we operate. But Jesus, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. It's hard for me to understand why he would leave behind success and go to a place because he's going to be rejected there. Except for this. He's come to do the will of the Father. And this is the Father's will for him. This is his mission. This, as much as Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, that's not true. He could have gone this way or this way like most Jews did to avoid Samaritans. No, he had to go through Samaria. What do you mean he had to? There was a divine appointment there. It was the will of God. He had to go there. Same thing here. Why leave fruitful ministry in Samaria to go to Galilee? Because he won't be honored there. And that is the will of the Father. We read Isaiah 53 this morning, not by accident. He was despised and rejected by his own. His own his family. own hometown, his own people. Jesus going because he's going to be rejected is in fulfillment of every prophecy we have in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. He's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. There's no way around that. This is part of God's plan for His glory, for the salvation of His people. He has to go to Galilee where He will receive no honor. Because this has always been the will of the Father, the way of the Father, to glorify Himself in the salvation of a people who don't deserve it. Now what, in light of that is surprising, is that Jesus goes because he's going to be rejected. And yet we read in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem with the feast, For they too had gone to the feast. Seems to contradict himself there, doesn't it, right? He's going because he's going to be rejected, and he gets there, and what do they do? They welcome him because of the things, the signs and the wonders and the things that they've observed him do. It almost seems like John immediately contradicts himself, except for this. Keep in mind the placement of this text. Don't just look at this in isolation. That's why we spent that first point. If you look at that, this passage is full of questions that you can't answer. But if you put it in the context of chapters 2, 3, and 4, and what has happened and come before it, we can instantly begin to recognize. It's one thing to welcome Jesus. It's another thing to welcome Jesus. Right? You can welcome Jesus because here comes a man who can do a lot of things for me Verses. Here comes the most beautiful, the most majestic, that uh, my heart is magnetically drawn to this one because, simply because of who he is, welcoming Jesus. Well, why did the Galileans welcome Jesus? Well, it certainly wasn't because they were spiritually, for his glory and his beauty, drawn to him. We're told why they welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Their motive is very clear there. Their excitement around Jesus was a selfish excitement. They've seen what he has done. They, this is the man who turned water into wine. Man, come on in, Jesus. we got a lot of things you can do for us as well. They were interested, not in Jesus as Jesus, but in the signs and wonders he could do. And again, here we're confronted with something. There's a way of welcoming Jesus that's all wrong. There's a way of believing in Jesus that's no belief at all. And that's why this plays right into what we've seen. This has been a theme in John's gospel. In John, we see people who reject Jesus and yet some who follow Jesus. But even among those who follow Jesus, think back to chapter 2. There were a multitude of people who followed Jesus, yet we're told at the end of chapter 2, but Jesus did not give himself to them. Why? He knew what was in their heart. On the surface, they welcomed him, they honored him, but Jesus, being the fullness of God, knew it was in their hearts. That their only interest in him was not because of him, it was because of what he could do for them. And he did not give himself to them. So these introductory marks, verses 43, 44, 45, and into 46, are not just filling up space. These are details that set the scene to help us understand when this main character, at least main character in the narrative, Jesus is always the main character of the story, right? But when this official comes onto the scene and his interest in Jesus appears to be what Jesus can do for him, for his son, how God's spirit changes the man. Jesus is leaving fruitful ministry behind among the Samaritans, going back to his own, knowing that they're going to welcome him superficially, but in their hearts they have no interest in him because it's the will of the Father. There's a plan, there's a purpose going on here John why does John put this story in here because again his whole purpose has been that we might believe truly believe in Jesus Christ the Son of God and in him have life and here he's confronting us with a reality that was true in his day it continues to be true in our day there is a faith in Jesus that is nothing more than a selfish self-centered Faith in what Jesus can do from you, including, hear me now, including save you from going to hell. We can use Jesus because I don't want to go to hell and have no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And John is writing this just like he's written everything else in this section, that we might not be counted among those but that we might be those who remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus, born from above, born by God, given a new heart, a heart that not just fears hell, everybody knows that, at least, but a heart that loves Jesus. Jesus wants us, John wants us to go beyond this shallow Galilean faith, which receives Jesus because of what he can do for us, because of his miracles. And he wants us to go and be enchanted By Jesus alone. So let's get into the story, the third thing. We've considered the placement. We've considered the introduction. Let's kind of get into the story itself. At least the official, the character. We're told in verse 46, there was an uh, an official from Capernaum whose son was ill. When he heard that Jesus was in Cana, he urgently made that journey. I believe, again, it was about 15 miles from his home to seek Jesus' assistance. A few things about this man. He was an official. Most likely he would have been in the the Royal Guard, the Roman government, uh, associated with Herod Antipas. So going to Jesus would have been dangerous. This is how desperate he is. He's willing to put his life on the line, his profession on the line, his reputation on the line to go to, to Jesus because he knew he would be viewed by the Jews as a traitor. For going to Jesus. But his need was so great. His son was gravely ill. He runs to Jesus. We take notice of his desperation. His son, those of you with children or grandchildren, don't just run past us. His son, whom he loved, was gravely ill. Potentially not to make it through the night. Put yourself in that situation. Feel the weight, feel the gravity, feel the desperation, feel the need. There's a father deeply concerned about his son. And so, so what if the Jews see me going to Jesus? I've got to do something. I don't even care about trivial matters. Let them kill me. This is about my love for my son. Do you feel it? And then notice he runs to Jesus thinking that this man who turned water into wine, well, then certainly he can do something here. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Notice Jesus' strange response, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Are you paying attention, Jesus, to what he requested? Well, yes. Now, there's something here that our English text doesn't bring out, but it makes all the difference in understanding Jesus' words here. It should be recognized in verse 48. Look at it with me together. So Jesus said to him, obviously that's singular. He's, He's talking to the official. You who just asked me to come to your son, he said to him, singular, unless you, in the Greek that's plural. He changes the Um, the verb there, or the number associated with it. So now he's speaking to this individual, but he's speaking to a plurality of people. Who, who's the plurality of people? The Galileans around, not just this man, but everyone around who heard this. He said to this man individually, to this official, you Galileans. Now, all of a sudden, this begins to make a little sense. You Galileans, unless you see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. He's not only addressing the official. He is. He's also addressing the crowd. It's a criticism, not just of the official, but of all of Galilee. What's he getting at? I know your hearts. Your faith in me is shallow. It's selfish. It's not authentic. It's based upon what you think think i can do for you because you've seen miracles i did or the miracle i did at canaan your faith is shallow and thus no faith at all you got to grasp that part we who live in a day who's tried to create a a christianity that is you know you can uh, shallow faith a growing faith i mean there's a sense in which our faith is always growing But there is a faith in Jesus Christ for who he is, in his his person, his atoning work, that it can't be shallow. It's a faith in him or it's no faith at all. And for these Galileans, their faith in him was not a faith in his person, not in him. It was in what they have perceived, his miracles, what he's able to do for them. Well, this man is undeterred. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Just a very interesting encounter there. Jesus addresses an inauthentic, shallow faith that is no faith at all among the Galileans. This man continues to press in on behalf of his son, and Jesus, in kindness and mercy and grace, go, your son will live. And the man, believing the word that Jesus spoke, went on his way. Pause there for a minute. Jesus had just said, you Galileans won't believe unless you see a sign and hear the official hearing Jesus say, Go, believing, not a sign, but what? The word that Jesus has said went on his way. There's a contrast there in believing in Jesus, just what you've seen. I've seen his miracles. If he can do that, he can do this for me. Versus, Christ has said it. And I believe. Again, put yourself in the shoes of this man, a dying son. And this one you put your hope in says, go, your son will live. If I'm the parent, come with me. I want you over him. I want you to touch him, heal him. Do something. This father, what? Takes Jesus at his word and leaves and departs. You can almost read right past this and miss what's happening in the soul of this official. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Not by what you see with your eyes. As the story progresses, we're told the man was journeying home. He has to take up lodging overnight. Again, he it's late in the evening. He goes home the next day. He's rushing home. Don't read into that. that he It's unimportant. He's urgently running home. As he's on his way there, some of his... His servants meet him on the road with good news. His son was recovering, is what the ESV says. A better word there is he lives. He lives. The fever has broken. Your son, who we thought might not make it through the night, lives. And the servant or the the official asks his servant, what time did his fever break? And they said it was one o'clock yesterday. And the official knew. That was the exact moment that Jesus had spoken this word, go. Your son will live. Look at the end of verse 53. 53. And he himself believed and all his household. Wait a minute. His son, has, he's already recovered. Think back to foxhole conversion in the crisis. In the crisis, you cry out to God, but what about when the crisis is over? The true test of genuineness is not what you do in the crisis. It's what do you do when the crisis is over? Do you put Jesus on the shelf? Do you just put them where you can find them when the next comes along? That's not what's happening here, is it? And it makes sense. The, the, the father left Jesus based upon the promise of his word. There's faith in the word of God in Christ. He leaves, and even here, after the Christ is over, he believed, and all his household, as he tells of the, the The majesty of Christ, not just what he did, but the majesty of Christ, the fullness of Christ. What this man did, what this man can do. They were enchanted, not by what Jesus can do for them in the crisis. The crisis is over. But who he is. And they believed in him. Crisis over. And yet still we worship. Because of who he is. Spurgeon calls this profession of faith by this Official and by his household, the full assurance of faith. And what Spurgeon means by that is his faith has grown from this initial foxhole faith where he sought the Lord because he was in the midst of a crisis. His son was at death's door. It's grown now to a true faith. Where even if Christ doesn't come with him, Christ has spoken and his faith is in the person of Christ. When that person speaks, it's done. It's good enough for me because I believe who you are. He's taking Christ at His word. It's matured that Christ is the Son of God. And as the Son is healed, He recognizes this is no ordinary prophet. But this is one who can (laughs) speak words from 15 miles away. He can command a fever to break from 15 miles away. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to give medicine. He doesn't have to take the temperature. 15 miles away, he says, fever, be gone. Your son lives. The fever runs away and the son gets up alive. Who can do that? God. This man is God. In this man is the fullness of God in human flesh. And he believed Jesus was the Christ. You see what's different between this man and all the way back to chapter 2, the multitude who followed Jesus, but Jesus knew what was in their hearts. They weren't enchanted by Christ, by who he is. They were enchanted by what Christ could do for them, this man. Christ is done for him. Don't, don't, But he's enchanted by the power, the glory, the greatness, the fullness of God who's in this man, who can do this. And he devoted himself to Jesus of Nazareth. Pastorally, I want to throw this in. I came across this last night, and I I think this is a great application of this. This comes from Calvin's commentaries, John Calvin. Calvin acknowledges that God doesn't often give us immediate answers to our requests as Jesus did to this man. Let me just read from him. But even then, we must trust that he has a good reason for his delays and that he awaits for our good. Would it have changed matters? If the healing didn't come immediately, what about when in your life, when you pray to Christ, who in him is the fullness of God, he can do all things, and when he sovereignly chooses, not now. Not on your timetable. I have a purpose in that. Does your faith in him wane? That's what Calvin is asking. And Calvin applies this story by saying, while we wait, when in the midst of a crisis we cry out to God for help, And for whatever reason, he's not bringing immediate relief. While we wait, we should consider how much of concealed distrust of God there is in us. Ouch. Only I pray God can help you. How much as Jesus waits and waits and waits and waits and waits, how much distrust of God is stirring in our soul the longer that goes. Calvin's point is this, how often we expect God to answer in our timing, in our way. And when he doesn't, we doubt him. We doubt his care. We doubt his ability. We question whether he knows what's going on. Has he lost us? Has he forgotten us? He's working all things out according to his plans, his purpose, his will. So what's the point of this story? Is it just to show what Jesus can do, and he healed a a kid from 15 miles away? Well, now, the signs and wonders that John reveals are always for the purpose of glorifying Christ. But from the context here, everything that John has included in chapters 2 through 4 seem to be given to compel us to consider Christ deeply, to consider Christ truly, to welcome him for who he is, not for what he can do, to follow him for who he is, to believe in him for who he is, and to do so from the heart. The disciples who followed Jesus, following the changing of the water into wine, are to be imitated. Now, those professing disciples who with their lips said, We'll follow you, profess faith, but Jesus knew what was in their heart. We're not to follow them, but to be aware. There is a propensity to try to use Jesus for your own selfishness. Is that the Jesus we've sought? Not for who he is, but for what he can do for us. Those true disciples, after the changing of the water into wine at Canaan, they're to be imitated. Nicodemus is to be imitated. Remember, that was what came next. He was one of the few from amongst the Pharisees who came to Jesus inquiring deeply of him. And Jesus had some important things to say to him. And we know from the end of the story that Nicodemus was one of those who was giving himself to take care of the body of Jesus post-death. Nicodemus was a man who devoted himself to Jesus for who Jesus is. Next came the story of the the woman of Samaria who had five husbands. And the townspeople who they too repented of their sins and professed faith in Jesus because of who he is. They are to be imitated. They came to him out of their, uh, their deep sense of need. Their legitimate need. And now this official who comes to Jesus and believes the words of Jesus, and even after the crisis is over, believes he gives himself to Jesus. His whole household, because of who Jesus is, this individual is to be imitated. The disciples, the Samaritan woman, Nicodemus, this official, notice they all come from different sectors of society, different backgrounds, different genders, different economic backgrounds. But what's the constant? Christ is enough. Doesn't matter where they come from, they all have needs. Not physical needs, spiritual needs. The same spiritual need. And Christ is the answer for them all. And each of these individuals compels us all to do the exact same. To look to Jesus for who he is and for what he's done to cling to Him in the foxhole and even when the war is over, to believe and cling and trust in Christ. Don't forget John's concluding remark in John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you might have life in his name. Go back and look at the passage. Time's not going to allow us to do it. How many times life and lives is used in the passage we looked at this morning? John's picking the words there. Life comes through Jesus Christ. There are so many people who profess faith in Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Some welcome him and believe in him so long as he shows the promise of a politician that he's going to come and politically make things right. Some welcome him so long as he'll perform signs and wonders that may benefit them. Some become so preoccupied with the signs that they just miss Jesus and who he is altogether. But in John's Gospel, the signs are always for a purpose, to reveal the glory of Christ. The signs are given not that we walk away saying, oh my gosh, water into wine. Oh my gosh, this kid was almost dead. I mean, literally, I mean, he was a corpse. He had this high fever. And and in a moment, the fever was gone and he was up and the signs were given. To bring glory to the one who performed them. And he performed them not for the benefit they bring to the audience. He always performed them for his glory. That we would see him and believe in him. In this life of living in a foxhole, but also ups and downs, good, bad, what else would I turn to? but to Christ and Christ alone. What about you this morning? What's your motivation for clinging to Christ? Are you still trying to wring something out of Him? You have everything you need in Him. He is the fullness of God. You don't use Jesus for something else. He is the something else. Does your heart believe that? Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see not what He can do, but what He has done and who He is and that your great need is Him. If not, we plead with God's Spirit to give you grace to repent and to run to Jesus. These things are written. Not that we oo and ah over His power to save. A life from fever and death, that we would believe He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one from God, for the glory of God, to bring us into the presence of God.